Let's pray together. God, we come to you as your children, thankful that you, being a holy God, yet you invite us to call you Father. May we not take that for granted, but may we be filled with gratitude that we can know you this morning, the creator of heaven and earth. God, we pray for those who are not able to meet with us, are not ready to meet with us, Lord, that you would be with them even now. Uh, Lord, as they're listening to your word via technology, would you encourage them? Would you be near them in their own way? Would they be able to connect with the body even though they're not yet able to be here? Would you keep them healthy and encouraged? As we return slowly back to normal, would we come back stronger? Pray for our teachers and our education administrators this morning that you would be with them as many of them are entering a very unknown school year already exhausted. Would you be their portion? Would you encourage them? Would you help them to be a light? And God, as we turn to your word, we're thankful yet again that you're not only the God who is there, but you are the God who speaks and you've spoken and you've preserved your word for us, your people, so that we might be sanctified, that we might be conformed to the image of your son, that we might align our thoughts correctly with you. Shape us as we open it up. We ask, we beg in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we kick off a new series, so I'm glad you're here to kick off a series on the book of Genesis, but actually it's not quite that. It's just Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to spend 12 weeks or so, and really that's not even true. We're really going to spend most of our time in Genesis 2 and 3. And we're going to have all the big questions of life answered in these chapters. Questions like, where did we come from? That's where we'll focus on this morning. Who are we? That's next week. Who is God? We'll see that every week. What did he make us for? Do we have dignity as human beings? What does it mean to be male and female? What are the gender roles? What about marriage and children? Then turning to chapter 3, we learn a lot about the nature of sin and the nature of temptation. What's wrong with the world? And then towards the end, where we're headed. So, so much here in these first three chapters. I hope you'll uh, join us this fall. And then towards the end of the fall, we'll jump into the Gospel of John for about a year. So, I'm excited. Meet me at the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Some of you may remember the the PBS special. It was really popular at the time. It was 1980. I wasn't quite born yet. But some of you are, and you remember Cosmos. Uh, At that time, very popular atheist philosopher Carl Sagan. Anybody remember that? Remember the famous quote that Sagan came from that documentary on the created order. I shouldn't say the created order. I should say nature is the way he referred to it. But listen to what he said. He said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be, just the material world. Well, contrary to Mr. Sagan, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. Before there was anything, God was there forever. If you have little kids, let me encourage you to be catechizing them. I know that's an old school thing, but it ought to be a very normal thing. Uh, The New City Catechism is one of our favorites if you're new to the discussion. And basically, it's just asking little kids questions to teach them drawing them out and of course usually in most catechisms one of the early questions is who made the world God did 
And usually what's the next question? Well, who made God? Even little budding theologian toddlers want to ask the question, who made God? And the answer is no one made God. He and he alone is self-existent. Listen to the psalmist in chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's pretty daunting to think about, isn't it? Before there was space, before there was time, before there was matter, there was God. Eternally existent. Perfectly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a little bit humbling, isn't it? We as 21st century Americans, we tend to think that God needed us or God was incomplete without us. Well, that's not the case. He didn't have to create. He existed eternally without us, without earth, but out of sheer grace, out of abundant love, out of extravagant generosity, he created the world. He didn't have to, but he did. And he created from nothing. Ex nihilo, which is really fascinating when you begin to think about it. I don't know how often you think about this. God, there was nothing but God, and then he created everything. It shows us that God is an artist. And when he began, his canvas was blank. He gets to work. And so just think about some of his masterpieces. We could go on all day, but just think about the wings of a butterfly, the feathers of a peacock, the glow of lava, the beauty of beaches, maybe not Texas beaches. Let's just think Caribbean beaches, the majesty of a big old male silverback gorilla, the sleekness and speed of a great white shark, the color of flamingos and the way they stand on one leg, the waddle of the penguins, the smell of summer rain and the senses that God's given us to be able to enjoy them, the complexity of the eyeball, the taste of watermelon. That's my favorite argument for God's existence, watermelon, period. Case closed. See, everything becomes an artist's touch. And the artist, again, gives us senses of sight and smell and taste and touch so that we might fully appreciate and enjoy his handiwork. Some people say that God ran out of ideas when he came to West Texas. <laughs> I disagree. We moved here three years ago from Central Texas. Central Texas has its own beauty. It's also got cedar trees, which aren't very pleasing to the allergies. But when you move here from living in a place like Central Texas, you just remember how gorgeous our skies are in West Texas. As my five-year-old likes to say, they are ginormous. Creation ex nihilo, the world becomes a stage. The kids were riding bikes the other day, and for whatever reason, the grasshoppers are out. And so they're all over the place, and God, you know, built these little things with these springy legs, right, to hop grass. And Bo, our three-year-old, was riding, and one hit him in the arm. He didn't really appreciate that. I imagine, I surmise that this grasshopper's name was Rufus, probably Rufus III. He fought in the great battle of lawnmower blades of 2017. Last week, his journey ended by a bike tire. He lived well. He fulfilled God's purpose for his life. <laughs> God, the artist, sets his stage and he admires his handiwork. It shows us that all creativity ultimately comes from him. He builds and he forms and he designs all things with marvelous wonder. Again, we could go on and on and on how he fashions the stars and the planets and puppies and flowers and shades of blue. As William Steele 
Puritan writer says, a Christian ought never to be dull, nor the Christian life ever drab. Look at our God. The world is a stage for the divine dramatist, and he creates us to play our part. And so in Genesis 1, God moves from the formless to the formed. First three days, he's correcting the formlessness. The next three days, he's correcting the emptiness. He forms, and then he fills his his domain, the place where he will rule, the place where he will create us to dwell. Listen to Isaiah in chapter 45. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. So before we dive into these six days, we've got to ask, what does day mean? Tons of debate and controversy about this word yom. Now, it can at times mean a longer period than 24 hours. And I wrestle with how much to share with you about all the different views. I mean, we've got the age day concordance view. We've got the analogical day view. We've got the gap theory view. We've got the framework hypothesis view. You've got theistic evolution. Probably could go on and there's variations within that. All I want to say is up until about 300 years ago, Christians were virtually unanimous that this day was a 24-hour day. That's what it means here in context, very clearly to me with six of them and there's morning and there's evening. People say, well, wait a minute. No, no, the earth's way older than that. We know that. Or do we? Lots of questions actually about our dating processes. There was also a worldwide flood. We won't get there in Genesis chapter six and following. And then probably most helpful to me is the fact that God created humans mature, right? He didn't create an infant with Adam and Eve and let them grow up. He created an aged humanity. And so why don't we think he would also create a mature earth? Could go on forever. Honestly, it just seems like it means day. So that's what we're going to go with. The first day, verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Notice the means by which God creates the heavens and the earth. It happens 10 times in Genesis 1. And God said. He speaks all reality into being. The universe is not self-existent. It exists because God said so. By his powerful word, he spoke all things into being. The word of God possesses power. Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen and was not made out of things that are visible. When God said let, all that was not started straining to become. And light is God's first step to start making order out of the chaos. There's no sun yet, so God himself is the light, which is the way it'll be on the new earth. Revelation 22, they will need no sun for the Lord God will be their light. And we see again that God's going to delight in the and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, meaning beneficial to humanity and honoring to himself. Creation is good. All we know is a fallen creation. But we got to know it wasn't always that way. Genesis 1 becomes before Genesis 3. And we also need to be reminded it won't always be that way. God's going to restore and redeem this world. Romans 8, Revelation 22. 
So we are not Gnostics. We are pro-creation because God is. We're going to see in a couple weeks. We're also pro-procreation, so be sure and come back for that. But now we're going to focus on creation. Look at the second day, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So God separates water from sky. Waters above are the clouds. And this is the second day. In Jewish, the Jewish calendar, Sabbath is the seventh day, right? Saturday. Then the first day of the week is Sunday. Then the second day of the week is Monday. That's what we're talking about here. Did you notice day one, he says it was good. Day two, we just read it. And day three, he's going to say it's good. He never said day two is good. Day two is Monday. Mondays, Mondays aren't good. <laughs> God agrees as well. Not really. The work of day two is actually finished on day three. Look at verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God, when he's rebuking Job towards the end of the book of Job, he says this, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? 2 Peter 3, 5, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water, by the word of God. And God's taking care of his people ultimately. He's not only providing seed, uh, fruit, trees, plants, but also seed that will then multiply. Reproducing plants. Look at the fourth day, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So now we see the sun will be that which divides the day from the night. Sun, moon, stars, these are all good gifts. And thinking about the time in which this was written, Moses writing to his people who had already left Egypt, all of their surrounding neighbors would have worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. They were actually the most significant deities for all of Israel's pagan neighbors. They believed that the sun and the moon and the stars controlled human destiny. These things had their own temples, their own gods, even the god of Egypt. Pharaoh was the sun god. They had their own temples, they had their own priests, they had their own mythologies, they had their own religious adherence. And what does God say? They're not gods. I created them, and I created them as these giant lamps to light up the world that I created. They will perform their assigned duties. These astral bodies, they're not divine rulers. They're created by God, serving with illumination and calendar. They're not deities. They're nameless objects. Doesn't even give them a name here, and they're created to serve us. 
And they function as signs. Just think about the navigational value of the stars or the way we can predict weather. God provides the varied seasons. If you're new to Texas, we've got two in Texas. But in other places, Alicia and I lived in Louisville for four years. One of the things we miss most is the four seasons. They're amazing. Fall is beautiful. God gives us that. He didn't have to. He did. He's generous. Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Kepler himself said the undevout astronomer is mad. Look at the fifth day in verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day creates the living creatures for the water. We'll see it creates the living creatures for the earth. And what's interesting, this word for living creatures is the exact same word that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when he speaks of Adam. So we're going to see next week that animals aren't made in the image of God. That's one of the things that distinguishes us from the animals. But they are living creatures, living souls. They have souls. They will be with us on the new earth. Isaiah 60 is all about that. Flying things. Birds, insects, I'm convinced that the mosquitoes didn't come until Genesis 3. Those are a result of the fall. But other types of insects, the ones that don't sting. Sea creatures, which can be used all kinds of giant snakes and alligators and whales and sharks. Then the sixth day, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. In the original, this word for livestock has a root meaning. It's dumb. Showing this type of livestock are going to provide lowly service to mankind, which they have done for most of human history. No evolution at work here. God produced all the varieties of life forms the designer of them all. God is the creator. That's the point. He's the creator. But don't we have a rival narrative today in evolution where it's just assumed by many Americans to be true? And let's not, not downplay the differences. They are significant. Did God create or did he not? Did the world come about from his design or did it just start by random and blind chance forces? What I want you to see is they really are two separate religions. An honest evolutionist will tell you so. Let me read from Michael Ruse, a, a very prominent evolution, who's honest about the fact that evolution, too, is a religion. Every human being is religious in some sense. They all worship something. Listen to what he says. He says, evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. 
Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. He says, I am an ardent evolutionist and an ex-Christian, but I must admit that in this one complaint, and he's talking about a creationist here, Mr. Gish, Mr. Gish is but one of many to make it, the literalists are absolutely right. Evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning and is true of evolution still today. Evolution, therefore, came into being as a kind of secular ideology, an explicit substitute for Christianity. It's important for us to know. So I want us to give us a little tools here on why evolution as an alternative story does not work. Five reasons. And by the way, I'm talking about macroevolution here. Not microevolution. Microevolution is true that creatures can express variation within their genus and species. No one's debating that. That's not the question. That's not the creation of new and different kinds of organisms by emerging from natural selection. So we're talking about macroevolution here. Number one, it's unbiblical. That should be enough. We can stop there. We're going to say more though. It's nowhere found in the text of Scripture. Everywhere God is affirmed as the creator of all things. Adam is a historical figure created by God. Number two, evolution gives no basis for right and wrong. It doesn't give us what we need to be able to make any moral claims. Everything just is according to the evolutionary worldview. There's no basis for right and wrong. Whatever is, is just is. It's just matter in motion plus time. Just your opinion against mine. No standard of right and wrong. In fact, if I'm stronger than you, I win. That's natural selection, right? In fact, it's not even really our opinion because according to evolution, we don't have minds. There's nothing outside of matter. We just have brains and there's just neurochemical processes that form my opinion. I didn't actually come to anything. It's just chance random forces causing me to be a Christian and causing another to be an atheist. Charles Darwin himself said this to a friend. He said, within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. He's worrying, you know what, I came to these conclusions, but actually, if I'm just an evolved animal, who can trust my capacities? Who can trust my reason? Philosopher Thomas Nagel puts it this way, making a similar point. Evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities that undermines their reliability and in so doing undermines itself. You can't even make opinions, can't even have thoughts. It's just matter in motion, biochemistry in your head. So you can't have an opinion, you can't have morality. Without God, everything is permissible. Moral opinions are just neurochemistry. Evolution gives us no basis for right and wrong. It just says natural selection, might is right, strong, eat the weak. It's violence by its very nature. The world just randomly wobbles on and its path is filled with little bones. But that's even being too generous because it's not a path. There is no path. No basis to call anything good or evil, all mere opinion with no authority. Third, and I'm going to have three reasons under the third, is that it can't do science. There's no accounting for science with evolution. There is a, we've got to know this, there's a ton of blind faith. We're usually the ones that, well, you're just trusting blind faith. We're science. Wrong, friends. And we need to know better. 
I love the honesty of one Harvard University biologist, another evolutionist, Richard Lewontin. Listen to what he says. He says, the scientific community has an a priori commitment. That means a prior, right? A prior commitment to materialism. The idea that all there is is matter. He's telling us, I've got faith in materialism. A prior commitment before I'm even going. Let me finish. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. On the contrary, we are forced by our a priori, our prior adherence to material causes. What he's saying is we don't go objectively and neutrally do science. I have a commitment that there is no God, and that's driving my science. Listen to what he says at the end of the quote. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So before they even begin the scientific endeavor, they have decided we will not allow God to be a factor in our science. There's no neutrality. We saw this in Romans 1, remember? We saw that God has made his existence clear from creation. And do you remember the one of two responses to that creation? It's either submit to his lordship or it's suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1, 18 to 23. This is exactly what he's doing and telling us so much of the scientific community does. Science doesn't prove evolution. It assumes it before it even begins. It has a blind faith commitment that there's nothing outside the material world. And then they proceed to do their work with so many questions unanswered. Where did the Big Bang come from? How did something come from nothing? How did life come from non-life? There's a lot of faith. There's a lot of hope. Let me mention three reasons why science is uh, not done faithfully. Number one, irreducible complexity. This is the idea that there are certain things in our world that could not have evolved over time. And the cell is the biggest one. Back when Darwin was doing science, he didn't have a clue about the cell. He didn't have an electron microscope. Technology has advanced so much since the day of Darwin. So they call it Darwin's black box. That's all he knew about the cell was it was a black box. Now we know all kinds of things. We know that it has to come as is. It cannot be reduced any further or it wouldn't function. It couldn't have evolved over time. It is a complex system of coordinated parts. They can only work when all the pieces are in place. They arrived all at once. Listen again to what Darwin said. He says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ, and we have tons now, the eyeball was another one, any complex organs existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So irreducible complexity. Second, just the lack of evidence. There's actually little scientific empirical evidence for macroevolution. It's just the same old grab bag of things that we've seen for years, most of which have proved to be false, like his finches. Famous finches, Galapagos Island, South America. That was microevolution, not macroevolution. They did not change species. They just adapted over time to drier weather, no problem. Or the famous fruit flies with four wings. Problem is it was a deformity. There was only two muscles. No one denies limited variation within existing groups. What about the peppered moths in England? Supposedly they evolved from lighter to darker. Turns out upon further investigation, it was soot from factory smoke. And the famous picture that we've probably all seen in our biology textbooks, they're perched on a tree. Those things don't perch on trees. That was a dead one and it was staged. 
Turns out that sometimes scientific fact is neither scientific nor fact. What about Ernst Haeckel's famous embryos, biology's most famous fraud? You remember the picture where you have the pigs and the whores and the humans and they supposedly look, you know, all the same? He himself admitted that he had a ton of license in making those drawings. Friends, this is not science. This is secular religion. Darwin himself acknowledged that the most damaging evidence was the fact that the fossil record didn't line up to his theory. He hoped it would eventually. He hoped people would discover the missing pieces. He had faith and he had hope in his theory. A century of digging to no avail. Paleontologists are throwing in the white flag. Waving it. So much is just inference. Speculation. Faith. The fossil record does not show species gradually transforming from one kind to another. There's no record of incremental changes. Each kind appears all at once, fully formed. This is the hidden secret of paleontology. You know what's happening. Romans 1's at work. God's made himself plain. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Third reason it's bad science is the whole issue of fine-tuning. The earth is unique. The rest of the known universe is hostile to life. But earth is full of finely calibrated laws and forces. The intelligent design movement's done all kinds of good work here, showing that we have things like liquid water and we're just the right distance from the sun and we've got an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere. The size of the moon is just right. It's in the correct location in the galaxy. The type of star, the thick enough crust, the electromagnetic forces, carbon production in stars, the proton-neutron gravity, you could go on and on and on. Earth is clearly the privileged planet. Why? Because God said so. Listen to world-renowned famous Francis Collins. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, the various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, planets, or people. So it can't account for science. Fourth reason, and I'll just assert this, and we'll talk about it next week. Evolution cannot give a basis for human dignity. Because again, we're no different than any other animal, any other matter for that matter. We're actually no different than this pulpit in front of me. Just evolved a little bit more. But the Bible gives us clear grounding for human dignity. And friends, look at the political climate. Turn on the news. Isn't the right and the left screaming for human dignity? You've got to have a basis for that to last. And we'll see next week we do. Atheism does not. According to them, we're really no different than an ape or a mouse. Just bigger brained. Fifth thing is evolution cannot account for meaning in life. It gives us no purpose. It's just matter in motion, blind, random chance. Can't account for beauty. Beauty is just a neurological response to certain data. It can't account for love. Love is just a biochemical need to reproduce and so spread your seed you, so you might extend and preserve your particular tribe. It's romantic, isn't it? See, it's, a, it's an acid that corrodes away at all meaning and purpose 
and morality. And when taken consistently, it's really a religion of despair. But God. The Bible teaches us that God created this all. God did privilege our planet for us. He is the standard of right and wrong. He is the basis for morality. We can trust our minds and our reasons because he created us in his image. We can be thinking people. We can form opinions and have objective standards and capital T truth. The Bible does affirm human dignity. And we ought to be those championing it because all are made in the image of God. And it does give us purpose and it does give us meaning. You were created by God and you find your purpose and your meaning and therefore your joy in knowing him and seeking to honor him in all that you do. We're going to see that the Christian worldview found in these three chapters really makes sense of the whole world. It's like C.S. Lewis said, he believes in the sun, not because he can look directly at it and see it, but he believes in the sun because by it, he can see all things. That's what we're going to see here. Genesis 1, God is the creator. Behold your God, immeasurably powerful, all wise, full of imagination and creativity, generosity and goodness. He's majestic. He is transcendent. Yet what we're going to see is he's also near to his creation. No beginnings, no limitation, no opposition. That is our good. Genesis 1-1 begs the question, do you know this God? What we're going to see is when we get to Genesis 3, it started good and went terrible really quickly. And I don't have to convince you of that. You know your own heart and you know the world. We're sinful. We're fallen, and you need forgiveness. You need redemption. God in grace has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place if you'll trust him. If you have any questions about the forgiveness you can find in Jesus Christ, come talk to us. There's nothing we enjoy talking about more than knowing the Lord, that which you were meant for. Let me close with Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being a God who speaks. And not only that, but a God who reveals truth and your truth ultimately makes sense of the world, not only in an intellectual way, but also in an existentially satisfying way, an experientially meaningful way. So we're thankful to be yours and thankful to live in your world. And because you created us, you own us. And so as we walk through these foundational chapters, would you give us hearts that are joyfully submitted to your way? As we increasingly bump up against current culture, may we trust that you know best because you made us. God, if there are any here who don't know you, pray that they would seek you. You would draw them. They would see their need for forgiveness, that they would be in awe of you and the, and the, the meaning and the purpose that you provide, that they would come to know your son, Jesus Christ. We want to see him exalted in the life of every person here. Pray that he'll be exalted as we close out our worship service together. In Christ's name, amen.